Welcome to everyone worshiping, up with, worshiping with us this afternoon. A special welcome to the guests in our midst today, as well as those jo joining us from afar via live feed. Let us glorify God and grow in his grace with our worship today. Consistory has the following announcements. Consistory has admitted to the table of the Lord brothers Silas Eichema and sisters Amanda Blum, Demi Timmerman, and Zoe Vinspronzen. If no lawful objections are brought forward to their public their if no lawful objections are brought forward, their public, public profession of faith will take place on February 4th in the 4 p.m. service. Church Council plans to meet this Wednesday, January 17th, and celebrating the Lord's Supper with us this afternoon will be Simon Eichema from Niverville, Greg and Henny Monroe from Chilliwack, John and Judy Timbrinke from Edmonton, Esther Stell from Edmonton, and Haley Leffers from Edmonton. Good afternoon. Please stand if you're able to for our call to worship. It's wonderful today in particular that we get to worship our God, to hear the gospel and to taste and see the gospel in the Lord's Supper, the meal that our Lord instituted for us. And so as we begin uh, and as we look forward to the Holy Supper that we'll celebrate today, uh, we remember it's been instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ and so himself. And so as our call to worship this morning, we'll hear the words of institution as described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where God calls us to gather and to repeatedly worship our God in this way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come together, we worship this awesome God who gave his own son for us. We come humbly confessing our dependence on him. Congregation, where does our help come from? It's in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And God greets us with his blessing from Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our text today is about our gracious God hearing the call of Jonah when he called out to him. And so with that in mind, let's sing together Psalm 116, stanza 1. So in order to worship our great God properly, and especially to eat and drink the Lord's Supper properly, we ought to examine our hearts and see if we truly accept our need for God's grace. 
So uh, let's return to the Lord's Supper form and continue with our reading of 1 Corinthians 11. There Paul continues. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so in order that we may celebrate this holy supper of the Lord to our comfort, we must first rightly examine ourselves. Further, we must use it only as Christ intended it, namely, to his remembrance. True self-examination consists of the following three parts. First, let everyone consider his sins and accursedness, so that he, detesting himself, may humble himself before God. For the wrath of God against sin is so great that he could not leave it unpunished, but has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by the bitter and shameful death on the cross. Second, let everyone search his heart, whether he also believes the sure promise of God, that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is freely given him as his own, as if he himself had fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone examine his conscience, whether it is his sincere desire to show true thankfulness to God with his entire life, and laying aside all enmity, hatred, envy, to live with his neighbor in true love and unity. God will certainly receive in grace all who are thus minded and count them worthy to partake of the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And typically, at this point in our worship service, we read the Ten Commandments in order to examine our lives, to expose our sins, and to guide our walk of thankfulness to Jesus Christ. And we find a paraphrase of the Ten Commandments in the next part of our Lord's Supper form as well. So, therefore, according to the command of Christ and of the Apostle Paul, we admonish all, admonish all those who know themselves to be guilty of the following offensive sins to abstain from the table of the Lord, and we declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. All who refuse to trust in the Lord alone, or who serve him in their own manner, all who abuse the name of the Lord by cursing or in any other way, all who do not diligently attend the worship services, or who despise the proclamation of God's word or the sanctity of the sacraments, all who are disobedient to their parents or to others in authority over them, all who violate human life or cherish hatred against their neighbor and refuse to be reconciled to him, all who, either within or outside of holy wedlock, do not keep their bodies pure, all who, by stealing, greed, or extravagance, lead a worldly life, all liars, backbiters, and slanderers, Briefly, all who, either in word or in conduct, show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life. While they persist in their sins, they shall not take of this food, which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. But all this, beloved brothers and sisters, is not meant to discourage broken and contrite hearts, as if only those who are without sin may come to the table of the Lord. For we do not come to this supper to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. On the contrary, we seek our life outside of ourselves, only in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we acknowledge we are dead in ourselves. We are also aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with such zeal as he requires. 
Daily we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. Yet, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are heartily sorry for these shortcomings and desire to fight against our unbelief and live according to all the commandments of God. Therefore, we may be fully assured that no sin or weakness which remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God in grace and thus from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. And so, brothers and sisters, keeping all this in mind, as well as thinking ahead uh, to the plight of Jonah that we were introduced to last week, calling out to God from the sea, uh, let's respond once again in song. We'll sing two more stanzas of Psalm 116, stanzas 2 and 5 together. Before turning to our text for this afternoon, uh, let's come before our awesome God in a word of prayer. Great heavenly God and awesome Father, we come to you today with broken and contrite hearts. Lord, we look back, we examine our lives, and we realize what we just confessed is true. Lord, we simply haven't loved you as we ought to. We haven't served you with appropriate zeal. We love your nature, or we love your law, and yet, Lord, as we examine your law each week again, our conscience accuses us that we have grievously sinned against every one of your commandments. And Lord, the truth is, so often we don't even properly see or properly feel how we haven't kept one of these, uh, any one of these commandments perfectly. Lord, as we come to your word, as we get to see a glimpse of your nature, we see how far short we fall of being your perfect image. And Lord, we see on our own that we're bound up in the chains of sin, in the cords of death. And so, Lord, this afternoon, this worship service, we cry out to you in our sin. We ask that you'll forgive us. We know that as the, uh, though that they're red as scarlet, we ask that you'll wash them whiter than snow. And Lord, we ask this humbly before you. But Lord, yet we ask this boldly. Lord, when we read your law, we're reminded also not just of ourselves and our sin, but we're reminded also of the nature of your Son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law on our behalf. Lord, as we just read together, we confess and we believe your awesome promise 
that all who believe in Jesus Christ, our sin and our unworthiness is given to him, and he pays it all. And his perfect righteousness is given to us as though we never had nor committed any sin. Lord, that's how we walk before you this morning. We don't declare we're perfect and righteous in ourselves, not for a second. But by your grace, by faith in your promises, we do truly believe what you say, that we are perfect and righteous in Jesus Christ. What an honor to be your perfect, righteous people along with your Son in your presence today. As we worship you in your presence, we ask that you'll work powerfully by your word and spirit. We ask that you'll guide our feet and keep them from stumbling, and that you'll teach us how to walk before your face in your presence once again. Lord, we pray all these things not because we're worthy of any one of them, but only in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now please turn with me, if you have your Bible with you, to our reading for this service. Uh, To our text as well for this service, actually. We'll be reading from Jonah chapter 2. And if you were here last week, then you've already heard a little bit about Jonah as we study Jonah chapter 1. We've seen Jonah is a prophet who, who got to bring the good news of God's undeserved grace and blessing, first of all, to God's people, the Israelites, in a time of their rebellion. But yet when Jonah was called to bring good news of God's undeserved mercy to Israel's enemies, to the Ninevites, the Assyrians, then Jonah fled the other way on a boat. And thankfully, we heard last week, God didn't let Jonah go away from his presence. Rather, he pursued him. He sent a storm after him. The sailors threw Jonah into the sea to calm the storm of God's wrath. And that brings us to our text for this service, Jonah chapter 2. And actually, we'll read the last verse of Jonah chapter 1 first as well. We'll begin at Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So far, the reading of our text for this service. Uh, Before jumping into the sermon, let's sing in response uh, a psalm that Jonah seems to be referencing here in his prayer. We're going to sing Psalm 18, stanza 6. (laughs) 
So as mentioned, Jonah chapter 2 is our text for this service, so no need to read it again, but I do recommend having it open uh, before you as we work our way through the text. So brothers and sisters, uh, as far as anyone could tell, Aminta Geisler had a pretty perfect life. She was a very good student when she was in school. She started dating a really good Christian guy. They got married, they had a couple of kids, They went to Bible studies, and they went to church faithfully. Aminta felt like she was doing everything right. But yet more and more in her life, she just wasn't happy. Eventually, she told her husband that she was done with church. She stopped going, but she still wasn't happy. So by her own admission, she started shopping, started shopping excessively. Not long after that, she started partying. She started drinking heavily. Then she started having affairs. She still wasn't happy. She told her husband and her kids she was leaving them. She decided that she wasn't going to let anything get in her way of her living her life. But as Aminta left, she got sadder and sadder. She got more and more lonely, she says. She got more angry, more selfish. And as she did, she started to despise her life more and more and despise herself more and more. She describes the time she hit rock bottom about a year later in a luxury hotel in the Cayman Islands. She had given herself anything she wanted, anything her heart desired, but she was miserable. She was in her hotel room sobbing. She was lonely and exhausted and desperate, and she said it was the worst day of her life. And yet, she says, if you ask her today, she says it was the best thing that could have happened to her. Because she realized at that point she had nothing left to turn to, nothing left to chase after. She fell on the floor and she started praying. And she had prayed many times before in her life, of course. But she says she had never, ever prayed like this. She simply begged God for mercy. She asked God to forgive her. She asked God for his presence to take her back. She says after leaving her hotel room, within half an hour, someone came up to her and invited her to their church. She says that when she, what she found out in the following months is what she had been missing this whole time. Even through her time growing up in the church, she was missing a genuine knowledge and a genuine love and a genuine dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the future years, she realized that Jesus Christ was the only one that could truly fill the hole in her heart. And today, Aminta goes around sharing her story far and wide. She wants others to learn from her mistakes. She wants to teach them what she learned about our God and about his awesome grace. I tell this story because in our text, we see, I hope you can see, almost the exact same thing with Jonah. We meet Jonah trapped in a fish, reflecting on his time at rock bottom, the lowest point in his life. And he tells us, in a sense, why it was the worst day, but perhaps also the best day of his life. Because Jonah shows us so clearly in his prayer here. Now this was the day when he turned back to God, when he sought his presence once again. When he hit rock bottom, Jonah realized his desperation, and he looked back the only place he could. He looked to God for his deliverance. And that's when he learned, as he tells us at the very end of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. We'll explore this lesson in two parts. First, we'll see Jonah's despair, and then secondly, we'll see God's deliverance. So first of all, Jonah's despair. And to understand Jonah's despair, we really need to try and get our heads into the story. The problem with beautiful stories like this that we get super familiar with 
that it's hard to look at them with fresh eyes. But we know very well what happens to Jonah after, but imagine for a second you didn't know what happened after Jonah chapter 1. Because Jonah didn't know what would happen after Jonah chapter 1. He had been rebelling against God, fleeing from him. He was grabbed and hurled into a violent sea. In this passage, Jonah tries to express for us what that was like to be thrown into the sea of God's wrath, thinking he was about to die. He tells us in this text, I was cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. The waves and billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, Jonah says. My life was fainting away. And I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I always had a few fears. And one of my great fears was drowning. It was just a terrifying thought to me. What could make you feel more panicked or more helpless than being trapped in the water, unable to breathe, unable to save yourself? And that is what Jonah was experiencing at the end of chapter 1. Jonah explains his physical distress really powerfully. But clearly there's something else on Jonah's mind, much more distressing, much more disturbing. Far outweighing Jonah's physical distress was actually his spiritual distress. In verse 2, if you look at it, you'll see Jonah tells us that when he was hurled into the raging water, he felt he was in the belly of Sheol. That means the realm of the dead. In verse 4, Jonah goes on to say that he was driven away from God's sight. In other words, not only did Jonah feel like he was dying physically, essentially he felt like he was dying spiritually. He was going down to hell. What made this horrible situation even worse for Jonah was Jonah knew that it was the Lord who had cast him there. As Jonah says in verse 3, Lord, you cast me into the deep. We remember it was the sailors who cast him. Jonah thinks of it as God casting him into the sea. He says, Lord, it was your waves and billows crushing me. He knew the Lord was in control of the water over his head suffocating him. And it's clear from Jonah's words here, he was certain he was going to die, afraid and alone. No one at all to help him. Even his God in that moment was against him, he felt. And studying this passage, I came across a couple of wonderful stories of believers. Believers who nearly died, or in fact, maybe who even actually did die, being swept away from the sea. And yet these stories weren't really terrifying. Instead, they were kind of powerful and moving. Because I came across a number of stories of people, Christians, in these horrifying situations, who had a great comfort. Because they knew that the Lord was with them, in life or in death. Some of these people, as they were swept away, they sang hymns. Some of them prayed out loud with other Christians who were nearby. One of the men I read about, he used his last few moments drowning in the sea to talk to those around him who were drowning too, to share the gospel with them, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is awesome. What a comfort and a hope that they had right until the time of death. But yet, in this story, we see something radically different. We see Jonah, it seems, had no such comfort of being with the Lord, or at least in his good books, you could say. Tragically, it seems like Jonah had only gotten what he wanted. We heard last week, three times Jonah had said in chapter 1 that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And in the sea, he felt that he had finally escaped God's presence, and nothing could be worse. He's about to go and be judged by the God that he had rejected. 
And spiritually, we can think of sort of uh, an image of this, a sort of a, a picture. We can picture Jonah sort of as a deep-sea diver. Now, I'm sure you've seen pictures of deep-sea divers uh, with big metal helmets and with an oxygen tube that goes back up to the ship. And these underwater suits, they can give you a huge amount of freedom underwater. They provide you with basically unlimited oxygen uh, deep underwater because they're linked back to the surface, back to the boat. But the thing is, when you're wearing one of these suits, there are, of course, restrictions. The air hose can only turn in certain ways. It can only go so far. And so likewise, Jonah is one of God's people. He is a prophet. He has an amazing connection to the Lord and giver of life. He lives in his presence, as we were all created to do. But yet the Bible is clear. God sends boundaries. He teaches us how we can live and flourish as his people in his presence. And God tells Jonah his will, what he wanted him to do. Specifically, he called him to go and preach in Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want to. And so Jonah started pulling. He started trying to get away from his task, getting away from the Lord who gave it to him, getting away from the boat, so to speak. And he kept going and pulling and struggling to get away. Suddenly we read in these lines, as Jonah is pulling and pulling and pulling, the line snaps. Imagine the terror Jonah felt. He realizes he's made a horrible mistake. Suddenly he realizes that the only thing that matters, the only thing that has really ever mattered, was getting air. Of course it was. What else could be more important? That's what Jonah experienced in the sea. He's drowning. His life is fading away. And he realizes the presence of God was the most important thing in his life. The thing he was pulling away from was the only thing that really mattered. And now all that is left for him to do is cry out. And there are times in our lives, I think, when we too can feel maybe a little bit like Jonah. Hopefully not physically. Certainly we can spiritually, though. There are times when God sends storms into our lives. Times he allows waves to crash over us, as we have already sung earlier. This is a common expression that the psalmists use. They felt God was sending storms, waves, not physically, spiritually, that were crushing them. We can feel likewise that God sends storms into our lives. He lets his waves crash over us. He allows us to be thrown into the deep. And it can be death or disease of ourselves or a loved one. It can be losing our job. It can be the breaking down of a relationship. Sometimes, though, it can be nothing so extreme. It can be something like apathy. We heard that with Aminta Geisler. Everything seemed great with her. And yet she, she fell and she believed for the lie of the world that God was holding out of her, on her. That if she wanted happiness, she needed to get away from her God. Or likewise with Jonah. It can be simply an unwillingness to give God part of our life. To demand, no, God, you can't go any further. This part of my life is mine. I won't do that. And so Jonah, he felt the need to withdraw. And any time spent wandering from the Lord, wishing for whatever reason that God would just leave you alone. That is what we're seeing in this passage. One of my good friends, he shared with me uh, when we were talking about Jonah, uh, a story about how this kind of reflects his own life. He had been hurt in the church growing up. He felt burdened and weary by Christianity. And so more and more he pulled away. And as he did, his conscience started to drive him crazy. And so he felt more and more. He just wished God would leave him alone. He says that he wished that and he prayed that time and time again. 
And he said one day, as he was praying that, he finally felt like God did. He felt like he felt deep in his heart that God was done with him. That was it. And he said that was the worst feeling of his life. And that is what Jonah felt in the sea. And the wonderful truth, brothers and sisters, is this too, as we can see so clearly in this book, this too is actually an act of God's grace. Even this was a gift. This made him desperate for God's grace and desperate for God's presence once again. He realized how foolish he had been. And that's what God taught my friend and Minta and also Jonah as well. God lets them hit rock bottom. He lets the air hose snap. Because there finally Jonah recognizes how desperate he is for the Lord. And Jonah desperately turns back to the Lord in prayer. And there's one more thing worth noting here in our first point. If you look at Jonah's prayer, especially if you have a study Bible with you, you'll see that almost every single line is either taken from or at least inspired by a psalm. And likewise, when we feel as though we're drowning in hardship or in guilt or in sin or whatever it is, we can and should cry out to God. And a wonderful way to do that is by learning a little something from Jonah. He makes a lot of mistakes, but he gets this one thing right. When he doesn't know what else to do, he goes to Scripture, and he cries out to God with the words that God himself had taught him. That's a beautiful way to do it. That's what Jonah does as he realizes his despair, and that God reveals to him his greatest need. And so he cries out to God for deliverance. And that's our second and our final point. So Jonah, again, picture him towards the bottom of the sea. He's powerless. All he can do is call out to God for help. Help that he absolutely does not deserve, of course. And help that only God can provide. Who else is there for Jonah in this situation? It's important to notice, Jonah didn't just feel the threat of being cast out of God's presence. He realized the reality of being cast out of God's presence. Last week, if you can think back that far, uh, we heard about G Jonah needing to be reminded that he was by nature like the Ninevites. That uh, just as Israel's enemies deserved judgment, likewise, he by nature deserved judgment. And here it seems that Jonah learns exactly that. We can see in verse 4, if you look at it with me, that Jonah says, When I was in the sea, I said, I am driven away from your sight. He says he was in Sheol, in the pit. And in verse 6, Jonah says, The bars closed upon me forever. The bars closed upon me forever. That is language of condemnation. Jonah realized he was. He, he should be condemned by God forever. These are remarkable words. He realized that he wasn't just almost condemned. He realized he was condemned. God had condemned him for his sin. And who could blame God for that? Jonah, this, this prophet who had been blessed with so much, and yet turned and rebelled against him. And this is what, brothers and sisters, where we need to realize that we are by nature too. By nature, we confess we're dead in our trespasses and sins. When Jonah says he is driven away from God, there's one text that should immediately remind every single one of us of. When were you and I driven away from God? Is that the beginning of Genesis? After the fall into sin, Adam and Eve turned away from God. They pulled away from his presence. They wanted his creation. They didn't want him. They didn't want him to tell them how to live their lives. And there we read, they were driven away from the garden. Driven away from God's presence. 
By nature, we are like Jonah, condemned. We're dead in our sins. The bars of hell have slammed shut behind us. We're banished from God's presence forever by nature. And our only hope that we have in the world is for God himself to intervene. For sinners like Jonah and for, like you, for you and me, who are already by our sin condemned to hell with the bars slammed shut behind us, what we need is for God to reach down into hell and pull us out by his grace and mercy. He cannot leave us where we are. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God did. And that is Jonah's hope. Imagine for a second you were drowning like Jonah was. What do you think would run through your mind in those moments? Maybe you might think your family or your friends, maybe something silly about work. Maybe your life would flash before your eyes. Well, if you look at the text, you can see what's on Jonah's mind. What he seemed to be thinking about most of all was about a building. You can see that in verse 4 and verse 7. What Jonah was thinking of and what he was directing his prayer towards was the temple. And that's not because the temple uh, was such a great building in itself, but instead it's because of what the temple represents. When humanity rebelled against God, when we had ourselves driven, cast out of God's presence, condemned to death, cursed and barred into hell, that is when God came down. That is when God approached his people. He came to speak to Adam and Eve And he promised a savior to his condemned people. And later he gave his people his temple. The temple, you have to picture what a beautiful thing this would be for the Israelites. It's a promise of God's own presence. Of his commitment to saving his people from the hell that they deserved. Of reestablishing heaven on earth. His kingdom. God's people back in God's presence. And so when Jonah has made huge mistakes... He has sinned willingly and deliberately against God when he has ruined everything and he has rejected God's grace and finds himself condemned before the Lord. Yet he remembers the Lord, we read in verse 7. The covenant faithful God, Yahweh, Lord all caps. And his prayer went to his temple. And then Jonah can say with confidence, Lord, I know that you heard me. In verse 7, Jonah says, My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And at the end of his prayer, Jonah, thanking God for his salvation, he says he's going to go and pay his vows. And in verse 4, Jonah says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. And it's important to remember where Jonah is right now. Because this seems like an extremely extremely bizarre thing to say for Jonah at this point, that he's going to pay vows, that he's going to see God's temple again. This seems like an awfully bold prayer for someone stuck in a fish. How does he know what in the world he's going to do? How does he know that God is going to save him? How does he know he will gaze upon the Lord's beauty in the temple once again? This seems like Jonah might be getting a little ahead of himself here. And yet, he's not. Because the key to Jonah's confidence lies in the phrase in verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. He remembered Yahweh, the covenant God. And this, of course, doesn't just mean that Jonah remembered that God existed. You know very well. He's known the whole time God existed. When Jonah says he remembered the Lord, it means I remembered who you are. I called to mind your nature. Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who promised a savior for his sinful people after the fall into sin. 
And his memory of God centers around the temple, where God gave sacrifices and feasts, granting sinful people forgiveness and the opportunity to come and have fellowship and eat with him once again, even though they never deserved it, not even close. Jonah remembers the covenant God of Israel and how he restores his presence by the temple to those who by their own sin had lost it. And Jonah says in this prayer remarkably, this is my God, still his God. In the depth of the sea, his life ebbing away, this God is his God. And so he prays with confidence. He knows the Lord will save him, even him. Because Jonah knows his salvation doesn't depend on him. His salvation doesn't depend on what he's done. It never, ever has. That's never been the basis of his salvation. It's always been on the basis only of God's nature, of God's love, of God's kindness. Jonah, if any one of us should ever lose hope, no way I can be saved. It should be Jonah right here, right now. But he doesn't. His salvation doesn't depend on his works. It depends on God's mercy. And so he cries out with confidence to the Lord. Likewise, for us, brothers and sisters, we need to learn more of God's grace. Often when we fall into sin, when we find ourselves at rock bottom, when we're struggling, we can despair. Now we've done it. Now we've lost it. Now there's no hope. But there is hope. Our salvation doesn't depend on our performance. It depends on God's mercy, on his character, on his love. Jonah remembers that. Praise God. This is the God who drew near to those who ran away from him, who gave his temple to those who didn't deserve it, invited them back to his presence. This God, Jonah knows, will save him, even now as he's still trapped in a fish. This is the God who, even when we were enemies, loved us perfectly. And jo Jonah saw that imperfectly in the covenant God's temple. But brothers and sisters, we see it far more perfectly than Jonah ever did. We see it far more perfectly in Jesus Christ. The temple was a sign of God's willingness to forgive sinful people, his desire to show mercy and kindness and draw near to them, to forgive them and dwell with them again, to save them out of the clutches of hell when they had slammed shut the doors behind them. But brothers and sisters, how much better is the picture that we have of Christ's nature in Jesus Christ? When we had slammed ourselves into hell, God himself took on flesh. He came down filled with compassion for sinners like you and me. He ate and drank with the worst of sinners. Knowing that we were destined for hell, Jesus Christ came down and he went through hell himself so he could claim us, drag us out of hell, and bring us back to God's presence once again. In this way, Jesus transforms our illustration of the deep sea diver from before. We're like Jonah, like the deep sea divers. We've wandered from God. We've pulled and pulled. Our oxygen lines have snapped. Our masks have filled with water. We've collapsed on the ocean floor. And when we're doomed, when we're dead in our sins, when we're condemned and destined for hell, we turn and look up, and we see Jesus Christ coming down from the boat. He comes to us. He revives us. He takes his oxygen mask off of himself and he puts it on you and me instead. He takes hellish agony. He takes our condemnation. He dies that we might live, that we might go back to God. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross of wood. 
His physical suffering was immense. He was suffocating, gasping for air, because on a cross you die of asphyxiation. And yet, as terrible as Christ's physical suffering was, his spiritual suffering was far worse. We've heard this before. Jesus Christ on the cross, he didn't cry out, my head, my head. He didn't cry out, my hands, my hands, though he could have. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like for Jonah, the pain was far worse knowing it came from his God and his Father. But Christ did that willingly. So as by his perfect life and his perfect death, by coming out the other side victorious, he might himself win salvation once and for all for people who were absolutely and utterly undeserving. People like Jonah and people like you and people like me. And this is the lesson we're supposed to learn from Jonah and from the temple and especially from the person and work of Jesus Christ. In our sin and in our shame and our suffering, we cry out with Jonah the wonderful words he's learned by the end of his prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's possessive. The Lord owns salvation. It's his to give freely as he pleases because he paid it all. Salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus Christ alone. And if it's Jesus Christ alone, he can give it to whoever he pleases. And that is our hope and our joy and confidence. Jonah learned that salvation is God's to give to the Ninevites and to him himself and to us. And we can praise God for that. That's the lesson we learn from Jonah. We see God's incredible love and patience and mercy, his great compassion for sinners, and his willingness to forgive people, even those who have hit rock bottom, and it's all their own fault. In Jesus Christ, we see this more clearly. A God committed to saving sinners, to grabbing them out of the depths of hell, to providing salvation free of charge to any who will receive it with a believing heart. And that's what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Exactly that. We don't come to the Lord's Supper and say that we deserve any of it. Not a chance. We don't deserve God's presence. But Jesus Christ earned it. And he freely gives it. As we take Lord's Supper together, let's remember the words of Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we uh, celebrate uh, Lord's Supper together, we can remember and we can trust that no matter how sick or how guilty or how far away from God we feel, we can look to Christ's broken body and his shed blood and trust God's own words in Isaiah 59 verse 1. There God himself tells us, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. We can see that in Jonah's life. Hopefully you can see that in your life and in mine. In fact, the further we are away from Christ when we call out to him, the more glory he gets in delivering us. The blacker our hearts, the deeper we realize our shame is, the larger we realize our debt is, the more power that's displayed in the one who reaches down to hell and saves us anyway. What a savior that we worship together. So as we wrap up this passage, let's confess joyfully along with Jonah that always and everywhere, even at rock bottom, salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Let's sing together in response the first two stanzas of Calm Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let's return to the form. I will take it up again on page 604 of the Book of Praise under the heading, Remembrance of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, let us consider for what purpose the Lord has instituted his supper, namely that we should use it in remembrance of him. We are to remember him in the following manner. First of all, let us fully trust that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father into this world according to the promises made from the beginning to the fathers in the Old Testament, and that he assumed our flesh and blood. From the beginning of his incarnation to the end of his life on earth, he bore for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished eternally. By his perfect obedience, he has for us fulfilled all the righteousness of God's law. We remember in particular that the weight of the wrath of God caused by our sins pressed out of him sweat like drops of blood falling on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he was bound that he might free us from our sins. He suffered countless insults that we might never be put to shame. Though innocent, he was condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He even let his blessed body be nailed to the cross that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sins. By all this, he has taken our curse upon himself, that he might fill us with his blessing. On the cross, he humbled himself, in body and in soul, to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. Then he called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we might be accepted by God, and never more be forsaken by him. Finally, by his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal testament, the covenant of grace, when he said, It is finished. In order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus, during his last Passover, instituted the Holy Supper. He gave the bread and the cup to his disciples in remembrance of him. He taught us to understand that as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we are reminded and assured of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. It is a sure pledge that he has given his body and shed his blood for us. Otherwise, we would have suffered eternal death. He nourishes and refreshes our hungry and thirsty souls with his crucified body and shed blood to everlasting life, as certainly as this bread is broken before our eyes, and this cup is given to us, and we eat and drink in remembrance of him. From this institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we learn that he directs our faith and trust to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross. It is the only ground for our salvation. Thereby he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death he has removed the cause of our eternal hunger and misery, which is sin and obtained for us the life-giving Spirit. By this Spirit who dwells in Christ as the head, and in us as his members, we have true communion with him, and share in all his riches, life eternal, righteousness, and glory. By the same Spirit, we are also united in true brotherly love as members of one body. For the Apostle Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As one bread is baked out of many grains and one wine is pressed out of many grapes, 
So we all, incorporated in Christ by faith, are together one body. For the sake of Christ, who so exceedingly loved us first, we shall now love one another, and shall show this to one another, not just in words, but also in deeds. Finally, Christ has commanded us to celebrate the Holy Supper until he comes. We receive at his table a foretaste of the abundant joy which he has promised and look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when he will drink the wine new with us in the kingdom of his Father. Let us rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. May the almighty heavenly God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this through his Holy Spirit. Amen. And to receive all this, let us now humble ourselves before God in prayer and call upon him in true faith. Let's pray together. Merciful God and great Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that in this supper we cherish the blessed memory of the bitter death of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. Work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit so we may entrust ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that our contrite hearts may be nourished with his true body and blood. Yes, with him who is the only heavenly bread, that we may not live in our sins, but Christ may live in us and we in him. Let us so truly, Lord, be partakers of the new and everlasting testament, the covenant of grace, that we do not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, never more imputing to us our sins, but providing with all, uh, us with all things for body and soul as your dear children and heirs. Grant us your grace, Father, that we may take up our cross joyfully, that we may deny ourselves and confess our Savior Jesus Christ. Let us in all tribulation await our Lord Jesus, who will come from heaven to change our mortal body to be like his glorious body and take us up to himself forever. Hear us, Lord, through our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now please stand if you're able to, and let's profess our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith uh, as we have it summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed and put to music in hymn one.
Brothers and sisters, in order that we may now be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, we must not cling with our hearts to the outward symbols of bread and wine, but lift up our hearts on high in heaven, where Christ our advocate is, at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. I'd like to invite the elders forward to distribute the elements. Brothers and sisters, the bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins.
Would the elders please come and distribute the wine? Just a quick reminder that the inner circle of each of the trays is grape juice for those who need to abstain from wine. Brothers and sisters, the cup of blessing for which we give thanks is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take, drink from it, all of you. Remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sins.
Please join with me in singing hymn 60, stanzas 1 to 4. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us together praise his holy name. Let everyone say in his heart, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Therefore, my heart and my mouth shall proclaim the praise of the Lord from now on and forevermore. Amen. Let's come before our Lord and Father in prayer. Merciful God and Father, we thank you that in your boundless mercy, 
You have given us your only begotten Son as our perfect mediator. We praise you that he is the sacrifice for our sins and our food and drink to life eternal. We thank you that you give us also a true faith through which we may share in such great benefits. Through your Son, you have instituted the Holy Supper for the strengthening of our faith. We earnestly ask you, faithful God and Father, that by your Holy Spirit, this celebration may lead to our daily increase in true faith and in fellowship with Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and grace. In our sin and in our weakness, we boldly proclaim with Jonah and with all of your people that salvation belongs to the Lord. We're so thankful we could trust you to provide us with all that we need for body and for soul, that you have won salvation for your people and have granted it to us in Christ for all who believe in him. Lord, we're so thankful that you're a God who draws near and helps, a God who hears and answers our prayers as well. Lord, we want to thank you this Sunday in particular and praise you for caring for Greta and Bill Veldkamp this week. Uh, Lord, thank you for Greta's surgery, that it go, go ahead as scheduled, and that seemingly it went quite well, that they removed uh, the cancer, it seems, though they are awaiting further tests. Lord, we ask that uh, you will grant Greta and Bill uh, all that they need in the coming days. We ask that Greta can return home soon and, and continue uh, to recover. We ask that you will bless her with a full and quick recovery, and her test, may her test results come back favorably soon as well. Lord, we ask that you'll continue to be close to Bill and Greta and just to all of those who are going through trials, all of those who are struggling, and all who are suffering. Lord, we know many in our church community have lost loved ones recently. We ask that you'll grant them comfort in Jesus Christ and that you'll prove yourself true when you tell us that your mercies are new every morning and your steadfast love never comes to an end. Lord, we pray this for all who are struggling uh, with whatever kind of affliction uh, they are going through. Lord, we pray for the many in our congregation who are struggling with health issues, whether they be physical health issues or mental health issues as well. We know that both of these things can be heightened. They can be especially difficult in winter, especially during cold weather as we've had recently. Lord, help your children feel the warmth and closeness of your love and your presence and your care. And Lord, we ask that you'll use us, the body of Christ, to do this. Lord, teach us to love your calling, to draw near to you each day and to draw near to your people as well. Uh, to love one another and uh, self-sacrificially serve one another as Christ self-sacrificially served us. Lord, please grant and help and equip us to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and forgiving one another as you have forgiven us. Lord, help us to spread your warmth and love to one another. Help us desire to do so. Help us also desire to spread your warmth and love uh, in this cold city as well. Not just to those in this church, but those around the church as well. Lord, help us to shine as lights in a dark world, even as Jesus Christ himself came down and was the perfect light to this dark world in our time of need. Lord, we pray more and more that you will teach us, you will work in us, you will even discipline us and make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things only and always in his name alone. Amen. This service, as always, we have an opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord. They don't go to the operating budget of the church, but always for good causes. And the offering for this service is for Christ for all ministry. I wish you could read about in the liturgy sheet if you don't know about their work. After our collection, please stand and we'll join in singing the final stanza of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
Brothers and sisters, receive God's parting blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.